Here is the deepest secret that nobody knows. Here is the root of the root and the bud of the bud and the sky of the sky of a tree called life, which grows higher than a soul can hope or a mind can hide. And this is the wonder that's keeping the stars apart. I carry your heart. I carry it in my heart. Welcome to Cambridge Forum. I'm Mary Stack. And today we're going to be exploring an organ that is of paramount importance to us all, the heart, that untiring pump which lies at the nexus of our physical and emotional well-being. While few could dispute its anatomical significance as a miraculous engine, a model of design unsurpassed by any human-made creation with its resilience and precision, beating 100,000 times a day, it clops up 3 billion beats if you live to be 100. But although it's got remarkable pumping function, and that's undeniable, its other attributes are not quite so well understood. It is known to be super sensitive, not just in responding to emotions, but also in creating them. And you can indeed die of a broken heart. Recent findings have revealed a much deeper connection between the heart and the brain than was previously realized. To help us unlock some of these mysteries, we have with us today a world expert in cardiac science who is professor of cardiac pharmacology at Imperial College London. Sean Harding is author of a new book, The Exquisite Machine, The New Science of the Heart. Welcome, Sean. Hi, thank you. In addition, we'll be joined by physician and poet, Dr. Fadi Judah, who practices internal medicine at St. Luke's Baylor Medical Center in Houston, Texas. So welcome to you, Fadi. Thank you. So let's start first with you, Sean. Congratulations on your book, which I guess is in large part a product of 40 years working in the field, uh, particularly on the function of cardiomyocytes. Perhaps you could explain a little bit about those to us. Apparently we have two or three billion in one heart. Yes, but yes, absolutely. Um, but we have five and, and we lose about two if we have a heart attack. They're, they're basically the, the little muscle cells. So if you've ever hold, held a heart, it's really solid thing. And uh, it's packed with muscle. It just has this giant muscle to push all the blood around your body. And, and it's really made up of these cells, which are like a jigsaw. They're, they're, they're connected to each other all over by electrical connections. So the electrical impulse can run through and the mechanical impulse can, can be coordinated. Uh, but if you, if you take them out, uh, so we work out a way to kind of put some enzymes through and get the, all the little cells out, you can get one tiny cell, that's, that's sort of the, the width of a human hair. It will beat away in a dish like a little heart. It sort of looks like a, a crystal, actually. It's it's uh, like a or a brick. It's got stripes on it, the, the stripes of the muscle fibers, and it'll just you put the electrodes across it, just beat away just very nicely for a couple of days like that. Uh, just amazing. And uh, it's this contraction and relaxation of each of those tiny cells that adds up to the force that pushes the blood out of your muscle. So why did you become so fascinated with this one single organ? Um, well, there's sort of there's a there's an emotional thing and there's a, a scientific thing. So, the scientific thing, I just actually to be honest, I just love these cells really. But the uh, the fact that 
uh, you start off, uh, you know, we, we were trying, we've been trying, we've been arguing for a, quite a lot of my career, there was arguments about whether there was any kind of self-repair in the heart. And he kept finding the thing, there must be, it's crazy not to have something that repairs itself. But it was really very difficult to find, and it wasn't until, I can explain this later if you want, the bomb tests and the carbon-14 in the atmosphere that we managed to carbon date the heart. And, and we could find that there was just a little bit of turnover, perhaps 1% a year. But that means that half your heart, half the cells in your heart, will uh, be there from the time you're born to the time you're die, you die. And so one, one of these little tiny cells has been going for 100 years or, or, or something like that, which is just incredible for a start. Uh, and, and then there was the emotional thing, which is my, my father-in-law had heart failure just at the time when I was trying to decide between disciplines. And, you know, I had I had thought about neuro and, and mathematics, all sorts of things. But this kind of pushed me in the way of, of the cardiac side. Interesting. And you're still interested, obviously. So you've just written yeah. a book about it. I mean, you know, still, even now, I'm retired actually, but even now, every every month something new comes out that makes me go, wow, about the heart. So obviously, over those 40 years, uh, technologies advanced remarkably. It used to be you just have to open somebody up to see what was wrong. And now imaging makes that all possible without surgery. So what are the other sort of things that are now at, dispose, at our disposal, like the stem cell technology, which is exciting in terms of repairing the heart? Uh, well, that has been very exciting, uh, yeah, in quite a visceral way. Um, the, the, the cardiac myocytes that I talked about, uh, once they're out of the heart, they die of quite honestly loneliness. It's called anoikis. It's, it's actually means an, an homeless or, or, or lonely. So that's a good word for you, Paddy, um, <laughs> <laughs> for, the, for the poem. Uh, so they, they then break down their structure and they, without the mechanical sort of stimulus. But we've been able to make cardiac myocytes will last for a, a year, more than a year. So and out of skin. Or, or, or blood or something. So these are the, the pluripotent stem cells. Uh, there's, you might have heard of embryonic stem cells mm -hmm. that come from the venous system. And so they're fantastic. They, they're going to make all the cells of the body. And so if you get the right solutions, you get those, you can grow them up in huge amounts. You get the right solutions, you can push them to be a kidney or a liver or a heart. So you can do that and, and they will, will form these heart cells and they will form quite masses of heart cells quite spontaneously but of course there was a problem that you're destroying an embryo you know some of them were left over from IVF but still that was a big problem so about 10 just over 10 years ago somebody won the Nobel Prize for showing you can reprogram cells in ordinary cells in your body back to their sort of virgin state back to factory settings basically so that they, um, by using some of the factors that have been known for the uh, embryonic stem cells. And so you can take a skin cell and you grow them up. Um, they grow quite well in a dish. Then if you treat them with these factors, they become, they kind of wipe their memory and they become stem cells. And so you can do exactly what you just did with the embryonic ones. And so you can make your skin cells now become your heart cells. And there's some amazing things that that means first they'll immune match to you if you have a heart transplant you have to have to take immunosuppressives the whole time and that's quite nasty drugs i'm sure paddy will agree with me 
but for the pluripotent cell, the induced pluripotent stem cells, that's what they're called, the ones you make from your own skin, then you they will be immune matched to you. And so if we were to, theoretically at least, if we were to put them back onto, onto your heart, they shouldn't be rejected. But um, because if you, had a, if you have a, a, something wrong with your heart, like um, a mutation that makes your heart rhythm problematic, it shows up in these cells. And so you can now test drugs on them. With, so you can test something on your heart. External. Your heart, yes. That's handy. So how far are we off from that actually growing a heart? So we've grown these patches of, of cells. And so that's in very small clinical trials, very small clinical trials at the moment, just reported from the Japanese ones that start in, in 2020 and they're safe. That's pretty much it at the moment. The, the, the problem with growing a whole heart from those is you need the blood vessels too. And so there's lots of work going on with 3D printing and, and things like that to try and, and print those blood vessels into, into the heart. That's because it's more than just cut muscle in the heart. I'm sure we'll get there though. Okay, so because the heart is so strong and resilient, but it's also super sensitive, it makes it difficult to uh, repair, is that right? Uh, uh, yes, it's, it's, it's just evolved so, so well. Um, I mean, one of the things, for example, if you take these pluripotent stem cells and you inject them into the heart, um, because they're young cells and, and they're not they're not quite the same as the older ones and also at the beginning they're not attached to each other they will disrupt the the all that beautiful jigsaw of the heart as you put too many in then then you'll start to get rhythm disturbances and so it'll it, after a couple of months that'll that'll die down as they do integrate but you know having really serious arrhythmias for two months is something you can't have in a therapy and in the same way when we tried to stimulate that very small amount of repair it did work it did prevent the heart attack scar but if it keeps going then because when when the heart when the cells have to divide they have to break down their structure and then divide and then build it all up again if too many of them are doing that at once again just disrupts the substrate right. in the heart. So, uh, so it's just too perfectly made to, to uh, for us to get our, our technologies in. But I mean, they do have amazing uh, things that we can do outside of the stem cell stuff. I mean, like the size of pacemakers has shrunk and these coils that monitor, um, that kind of tell you when things are going right. All that's re pretty recent, isn't it? In the last- That's right. So though all that technology is getting better and better. So you can have a device that, a CRTD device, which paces the heart. So if you've got a rhythm disturbance, it's paced. But then if you, if you, it's senses a really bad one, it'll shock you out of it, like a defibrillator in your chest. And then it'll coordinate the two sides of your heart better. So the right and the left are, are you know, behaving together and that'll improve the contraction. So that's, and, and it'll send back um, messages. Uh, so you have a box by your bed. And so every every night it'll send back all everything that happened to your heart during the day to the pacing clinic. And then they can look at that and uh, just make sure you're all right and, and test it out and change your heart rate from, you know, their phones. Remote. Oh, yeah. That's, that's freaky. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so. 
You're listening to Heart to Heart with cardiac expert Professor Sean Harding from Imperial College in London, talking about her book, The Exquisite Machine, with Dr. Fadi Judah, physician and poet from St. Luke's Baylor Medical Center in Houston, Texas, whose latest collection of poems is Tethered to Stars. So I'm going to move to another area um, away from the um, anatomy for a moment. In your book, you got a poem by E. Cummings, a beautiful poem, I Carry Your Heart With Me. During the regenerative medicine thing, while we were trying to um, work out what, what was happening, people were looking at the stem cells, that the stem cells are naturally in the body. And it, 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 what, it, it seems that when you're having a baby, the baby's stem cells can cross the placental barrier and go, in, go into the mother. And um, they can stay there for, for a long time. You've, they've been found in, uh, say, when women are having um, hip operations when they're much older, you know, decades after the pregnancy, they can find the baby stem cells. They find it because of the, uh, if it's a, a male baby, a boy, then you can see the, the uh, male gene in there. So it stands out from the mother. But it does happen for female, for, for girl babies too. And so you can find these decades later. So, so they, what they did, with, again, with some mice is they um, uh, crossed them uh, with other mice. So the babies had a bioluminescent protein in them. And that means you can put a probe over the, the mother mouse and you can see the babies inside uh, because they, they, you can see the bioluminescence. And you can also see the stem cells moving away from the from the baby mice into into the mother and if you make a tiny nick in the ear of the mother the stem cells rush to that and it looks like they're trying to repair it and in, in women uh, this uh, who've had breast cancer surgery they found the baby stem cells in their in, in the wound for, 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 for the uh, you know, surgical wound, the breast cancer. So we don't know, but that's the, that's the, the idea that they're certainly there. Maybe they've got some kind of regenerative function. We just don't know. But what it means is that you have your, and I like this, your, the women are, who have had babies are chimeras. They, they have, they're a mixture of people's cells. So they're not just one person. And they have their, their children's cells in there. And also, of course, they will have the DNA for the father because each cell will have the you know mother's and father's DNA. So you can't get rid of your husband, you know, even if you wanted to, it's, it's still there. So in a very real sense, this poem is literally true. I carry your heart with me. I carry it in my heart. So have you got a copy that you could read? Yes, so I should read it for you now. I carry your heart with me. I carry it in my heart. I am never without it. Anywhere I go, you go, my dear, and whatever is done by me is only your doing, my darling. I fear no fate, for you are my fate, my sweet. I want no world, for beautiful, you are my world, my true. And it's you are whatever a moon has always meant, and whatever a sun will always sing is you. Here is the deepest secret that nobody knows. Here is the root of the root and the bud of the bud and the sky of the sky of a tree called life, which grows higher than a soul can hope or a mind can hide. And this is the wonder that's keeping the stars apart. I carry your heart. I carry it in my heart. That's beautiful. 
That's really lovely. So this is a, a very nice bridge to our second guest, um, Fadi Judah, who is a physician and a poet. And I believe you began writing poems, Fadi, when you were working um, for Doctors Without Borders in Africa. And despite being a devoted doctor, you say that writing is my original heart. I think that we are, um, uh, as far as poetry is, is concerned, or art, or the original heart, one is born with that. I, I feel like I lived a life that made me into a physician, but I was born a poet. I mean, not be a good poet, but I was born a poet. What uh, uh, Professor Harding said about the regenerative power of the heart and the idea that 50% of your original heart cells remain with you when you die. It's also an echo of what she said about the stem cells or the baby uh, cells, uh, the fetal cells uh, circulating in the mother, which is, and then translating it into the language of, I carry your heart with me. And I feel like uh, I was lucky to uh, recognize an, an, an original or an essence of my heart early on as a poet and stick to that. Um, because I think that we, often struggle through our lives to, to find out a lot about our original hearts that stay with us. And uh, we spend all our lives trying to figure out who is it that we were born, not to be, but as. And I am not against change and mutability and et cetera, but what's, I, I think it's a, it's a sort of an existential angst, perhaps, for all of us to return to our original heart. And I think that in, in the language of mystics of any culture or religion, the isness of the heart or the essence of the heart uh, gives itself over to the mind as consciousness grows, as we forge ahead into the world. But then if one is lucky uh, or if one has trained the heart, the mind, uh, the mind returns and submits to the original heart yet again. And if one is lucky to have lived, I mean, you, you know, you need a little bit of luck of that, for that, uh, to, you know, to, to get to enjoy your original heart before, before too late. Uh, then I, I, that's how I hear also the scientific language that we speak of uh, at a cellular level. Uh, the, the other term, for example, that Professor Harding used was interoception. There's this uh, uh, old uh, uh, Sufi uh, love verse. You know, it says, we all know, you feel it in your gut, your butterflies, etc. It says, uh, my love lives in my gut. But if he chooses, he can walk upon my cheeks. And that awkward expression is to say that this is the expression of the manifestation between the heart and the gut by blushing. So blushing becomes a manifestation of many emotions. One of them is love when you hold your beloved in your viscera. So I do think that a lot of the human language, old or new uh, or recent, such as E.E. E. Cummings, is been quite in touch with, with, with the sort of us being on this earth 
and, and having this amazing memory about what it was for us to encounter consciousness for the first time from millennia ago. And miraculously, we've passed it on through language and science is here to reproduce it and take it elsewhere. Well, I like the new book, Tethered to Stars, because it kind of strings all those kind of ideas together, doesn't it? You've got, you know, the physicality of it. You've got kind of metaphor. In fact, you do that quite a lot in your poems. You go from a very biological language to something that's symbolic. Easier for you to do it than for me to talk about it. So maybe um, I should have you read one of your um, poems, Progress Notes, I think kind of demonstrates that quite well. Sure. The age of portrait is drug. Beauty is symmetry so rare, it's a mystery. My left eye is smaller than my right. My big mouth shows my nice teeth perfectly aligned like Muslims in prayer. My lips an accordion. Each sneeze a facial thumbprint. One corner of my mouth hangs downward when I want to hold a guffaw hostage. Bell's palsy, perhaps, or what Mark Twain said about steamboat piloting, that a doctor's unable to look upon the blush in a young beauty's face without thinking it could be a fever, a malar rash, a butterfly announcing a wolf. Can I lie face down now as cadavers posed on first anatomy lesson? I didn't know mine was a woman until three weeks later we turned her over. Out of reverence, there was to be no untimely exposure of donors, our patrons who were covered in patches of scrubs green dish towels. And by semester's end, we were sick of all that tossed mega-livers and mammoth hearts into lab air and caught them. My body was Margaret. That's what the death certificate said when it was released before finals. The cause of her death? Nothing memorable. Frail old age. But the colonel in table 19, with an accessory spleen, had put a bullet through his temple, a final prayer not an entry or exit, were there skull cracks to condemn the house of death, no shattered glass in the brain, only a smooth tunnel of deep violet that bloomed in concentric circles. The weekends were lonely. He had the most beautiful muscles of all 32 bodies that were neatly arranged, zipped up as if a mass grave had been disinterred or when unzipped and facing the ceiling had cloth over their eyes as if they'd just been executed. Gray silver hair, chiseled countenance. He was 67, a veteran of more than one war. I had come across that which will end me, extend me at least once without knowing it. Wow. I love the way you kind of grapple with the metaphysical questions all the time. I wondered how much you thought some of what, how you write and how you think is influenced by your cultural upbringing and being exposed to all sorts of things like Rumi in a way that we're not 
generally here in the West? Uh, I think uh, the, the only uh, main way I would say that this applies is through my own particular merger of cadence between two languages. But I am a person who believes that no language and no alphabet is more or less capable than another of speaking about love or metaphysics or you know, mystery or violence or, or science or anything like that. So I, I guess that's the, the genuine honest answer and instead of feeling that there's always a way to um, want to specify a difference uh, because the differences are there for sure, but the similarities of human language, I think, in the brain are uh, much more overwhelmingly common than we'd like to accept, uh, because I think language in the brain is universal. Poetry for me is uh, the music of the mind. Language is music in the mind. And uh, when I was young, I, I was quite, I, I noticed that there was some uh, pull or draw, or uh, I was compelled to sing language and I could never shake that off. Yeah, the, you, you've referenced another poem you said to me was one of your favorites, which is not written by you, but by Rilke. And I also wondered if you wouldn't mind reading that because again, it, it speaks to this kind of collective heart. Uh, yes, it's a poem by uh, Rainer Maria Rilke, a German poet, and uh, here it goes. It's a short one. We're only mouth. Who sings the distant heart that dwells whole at the core of all things? Its great pulse is parceled out among us into tiny beatings, and its great pain is like its great jubilation, too much for us. So again and again, we tear ourselves loose and our only mouth. But all at once, the great heartbeat secretly breaks in on us so that we scream. And then our being, transformation, visage. So when you speak about the collective heartbeat, do you see this as the voice of humanity or do you see some kind of continuity of life where we might have many more lives? Because you said at one point to me, you can only have one heart at a time. There is a, a saying by the prophet Muhammad, a, a, a true believer cannot possess two hearts in one chest. And the uncertainty principle in quantum physics says you, and I'm poetically paraphrasing it here, you cannot know the characteristics of two particles at the same time. You can only know one with exact certitude, but not the other. You know a little bit about the other, but not as much as you know about one. You cannot know both together at the same time. And so I kind of feel like, oh, well, this is what, these are all the way that we can only sit with one heart at a time inside us. It's not that you that, that I am not made of several hearts, metaphorically speaking, but I can only know uh, only one of them at a time. Okay, I can only sit with one of them at a time. And of course, we live in an age where we bring up the word mindfulness and, and, and uh, singular focus and what have you. But it feels to me that it's a meditative 
a calling, you know, for for contemplation, um, where where one can sit uh, with one heart within one chest at a any given moment to know it truly. And of course, we live in a cultural moment where we are scattered like uh, indescribably. So I'm actually going to thank Professor Sean Harding from Imperial College, Dr. Fada Judith, who joined us from Texas, Houston, Texas. Uh, took time out of your busy lives in separate time zones uh, to share your insights and poetry. Cambridge Forum is made possible through the generosity of Herbert and Dorothy Vetter, the Lowell Institute, the Mass Cultural Council, Cambridge Community Foundation, and you. So if you'd like to donate or sign up to the members list, go to the website, which is www.cambridgeforum.org. So I'd like to thank everybody who joined us and say I hope to see everybody again soon.